when I was working at Denise Reeds for Donald Denny, I didn't, I took for granted that everyone had the same experience that I did. That That's what work was, that you had a boss who understood not only your historical context, but the country's historical context. You know, you had a boss whose who's, um, default position is that I believe in you and you can do this and I'm going to give you responsibility and I'll be here if you need guidance. You're listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we just ask you one more question? And that's the antithesis of what this podcast is. It's about sharing the best conversations we've had with significant creators, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating purposeful brands. This season is focused around unpacking the topic of purpose, exploring what purpose means in its many forms, and we share how people are using purpose to build great companies and successful brands. I'm your host, Ross Drex. Today on the podcast, I talk to Luana Gasso. She's a constitutional lawyer, writer, and historian. Luando discovered how change happens by studying South African history and our constitution. She has many accolades. She's in the process of writing a book, Made in South Africa, A Black Woman's Story of Rage, Resistance and Progress. She's a trustee of the Constitution Court. And she's part of a team that's building a museum that tells the story of our Constitution Court. And she's the founder of a business named Including Society. We chat about how the constitution is the purpose of our nation, South Africa, and how each leader in business should use it as one of the things that guides them. And we talk about how conversations are a way to make companies better for everyone. Enjoy. Hello, Luando, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'd love to start at the the, the beginning. You know, when we had the, the call before this one, you said that your, your business, including society, was not supposed to be a business. <laughs> and yet uh, it is. Can you talk a little bit about how that, how that happy accident happened and <laughs> how you end up where you are today? I like that happy accident. Um, you know, Growing up, I never had the desire to be an entrepreneur. I never saw myself, you know, running my own company. Um, I just never had that desire. I've always been very clear about what it is that I want to do. And I've always known that I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer at a firm. And I wanted to, you know, rise up the ranks of the firm and uh, just have that as my stable foundation, you know, and be part of what I call a campus, you know. Law firms are very much like university in certain respects. Everyone in that building, you know, does the same thing. And we all think kind of the same way. And, you know, you can go to someone's office and discuss a matter. And it feels like being at school in certain respects, the best parts of school, you know, learning from your from your colleagues and solving really um sensitive and really difficult uh, problems for your clients. So I've always had this utopian sort of view of what a career in a law firm would be like. And I just wanted to nurture that and grow within that and um, see where it goes. But in as much as I've always had that desire, I've always known that my personality is such that at some point I would live that out 
it would come to an end and I would pursue a completely different interest. You know, that's always been how I saw things, that my life would have chapters, but none of those chapters included starting my own business. And um, in this journey of, of, of working at a firm or being a lawyer, in itself has been quite varied. You know, I, I did my articles um, at Denise Rates, which is now Norton Rose Fulbright. I left that, I pursued my studies, I worked at the court and went back to a law firm. I've worked for government for two years, went back to a law firm and then called it quits, you know. And um, so even that just tells you that I like a bit of variety, even within law. Yes. And um you know, my last experience, you know, I was able to observe a lot of things that are problematic in corporate South Africa and in law firms, because law firms are very traditional. Lawyers are very traditional, and sometimes they hold on to traditional structures and cultures that no longer serve them and that are exclusionary. And watching how other people um, really found themselves um excluded and uh, not seen became um, a fascination for me. It's something that I wanted to look into as to why some people thrive and some others don't and what can be done to sort of fix that where everyone can sort of belong. So including society, uh, my company wasn't supposed to be a company. It was supposed to be a project. It was supposed to be a research project. And um, now it's turned into a company. And, um, you know, it was supposed to be a project where I gathered research on people's experiences in corporate, especially black people or any person who considers themselves marginalized within the private sector and corporate and just get a sense of what worked for them, you know, best practice and what didn't work for them and the consequences of that. Because sometimes I forget that I think people forget that what happens to us in the workplace really has far-reaching um, consequences. So I started in partnership with Nando's uh, hosting conversation lunches. And the idea behind that is that I would curate a menu of questions and my partner on this project uh, called, uh, her, her company is called Food I Love You. It's run by Mpo, who's a friend of mine. She's amazing with food. So she's able to tell the story of inclusion and exclusion through her recipes. So she created uh, the courses for the menu and I created the questions and we paired them up and we had people around our table in interesting spaces, you know, which we could get, get into later. And through those questions and that dis- discussion, I was able to get a lot of information on exclusion and, and belonging in the workplace. And then I wanted to turn that into a documentary which would look at the historical roots of this and look at it in a very academic way, but also sort of fusing people's um, personal stories and experiences into that documentary, very much like The 13th by Ava DuVernay, you know. So once that documentary was done and uh, also maybe a a book, then I would call it quits for including society. (laughs) So, so, I mean, it it obviously didn't get called called quits, but I'm I'm interested to, to hear why you chose having kind of conversational lunches or, or debates and conversations around these things because you know obviously the the you know you, you've had an experience in corporate South Africa which has kind of driven you to be curious and to try and understand what's happening um, and quite often people sort of 
go to more of a space of of outrage or outcry or, or protest like what what inspired you to to do something more kind of more of an experience something more different something more thought-provoking yeah i you know when i first started looking into my research i started at gibbs the business um institution university Yes. Uh, Gordon Institute, and um, I met with uh, a, a professor there called um, Maxine Jaffet, and uh, I sort of told her that I have this idea, I want to understand these issues of belonging in the workplace, and um, she guided me through this conversational lunch uh, method. And it was one of the options that she had mentioned, and that's the one that stuck with me because I am a conversational person. And also I like the idea of formulating questions that can uh, give me the, the, the answers that I want. And I just thought that including like a, a, an interesting space and an, an interesting menu would bring out uh, more depth in people rather than completing a survey at their desk or me just calling yeah. people or doing it in a very like corporate way. I thought creating an experience, a holistic experience. Um, as I said, these conversations, the food is thought out, the space is thought out, you know, uh, the dynamics of the people around the, the, the table, the people that I invite, I think that through as well. And the chemistry of all of that I just believed would be, you know, um, the right setting for an authentic conversation where people feel that they can express themselves. I don't want to use creating a safe space because I don't believe in safe spaces in that way. I think, you know, I always say I believe in brave spaces where people can be brave and say what it is that they've been through and also what they think the the, the innovative solutions to these problems are. And also, I'm not about only providing space to people who have suffered or who have gone through the worst. You know, I also want to hear from people who've had good experiences. I've had good experiences, you know, and I think that looking back on my good experiences where I felt like I belonged, you know, I've then interrogated what were the factors that led to to my experience, you know. And uh, thinking that I can come up with some kind of formula or some kind of list of things that uh, companies can uh, take a look at and see what they could change to create a better environment for everyone, right? So that everyone in, in, in their staff feels like they belong. So I think the format of conversational lunches just created an easy but meaningful space uh, for people to share authentically. So, so I'm very interested, you know, in this idea. Why, why do you think belonging is important? Um, you know, I think some people might look at a a job or a career as just somewhere that you go and you work. You know, and, and do you necessarily need to belong? Why, why? Like, what is your take on why belonging means something um, in the workplace? Mm, I can use an example. You know, everyone who knows me knows that the best job I ever had was clerking for Edwin Cameron at the Constitutional Court. And um, prior to that, my only other work experience had been corporate. And um, my experience at Denise Rates at Norton Rose 
was actually quite good, you know, um, and I wrote about it. I, I wrote an article which will be in my included in my forthcoming book of essays called uh, Lessons from My First White Boss. And um, in the moment when I was working at Denise Reeds for Donald Dinney, I didn't I took for granted that everyone had the same experience that I did, that that's what work was, that you had a boss who understood not only your historical context, but the country's historical context. You know, you had a boss whose who's, um, default position is that I believe in you and you can do this and I'm going to give you responsibility and I'll be here if you need guidance. I thought everyone had that. You know, I thought everyone was given some kind of independence and autonomy and trust. And, um, you know, I, I had an incredible experience and working for Donald, looking back on my time with him, I gave a lot of myself. You know, I rose to the occasion. I mm. wanted him to be proud of me. I wanted to produce my my best work because I I was inspired even by him and how he conducted himself and how he ran the team. And uh, it felt he treated everyone in his team fairly. We all had access to him and um, there were no favorites. So that was sort of my first working experience. And I I, I really did my best work. And then I moved on to the Constitutional Court with Edwin Cameron. Similarly, you know, um, it's like working for your hero, basically. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, which sometimes you're scared of doing that because you want your heroes to sort of remain at a distance because sometimes they can disappoint you when you work up close with them. But this is a person who I admired even more because of that work experience. And obviously, someone like Edwin Cameron understands the journey that this country has taken. You know, the Constitutional Court is a place that functions within the historical context of South Africa. It has to deal with some of South Africa's uh, biggest challenges. It has to resolve some of our biggest disputes. And um, the, the judges then need to have a certain kind of disposition to be able to operate in that context, right? And also, they need to be able to work in a team. And the judges need to feel like they are part of the institution. The law clerks need to feel like they're part of the institution. You know, the Constitutional Court has very aspirational values, right? And such as equality, dignity, freedom. The values that are mirrored in the Constitution are the very same values that the court wants to, to animate, right? Mm -hmm. So if you work there, you can't have an experience where you you walk away and be like, hmm, the public thinks that this institution is like this, but in actual fact, it's not like that. So I worked in an environment where there was a concerted effort to live up to South Africa's highest ideals. It wasn't perfect, but the striving of it just just the striving of it just made me made me have higher standards, not only of, of, of my, my work life, but my personal life and also my work life after the court of what I wanted it to be. I don't know if you've ever visited the Constitutional Court. Have. It's a phenomenal space. Exactly. I love the story of how it was built. Exactly. So imagine working in that space, you know, um, as, as, uh, as, as a young Black South African woman at the time, this being my second big job, you know, and arriving to the office and seeing the culture where the judges know everyone by name, you know, not just the law clerks, but the, the cleaning ladies, the security guards, and um, all the support staff. 
you know, a culture where the judges themselves refer to each other as brother and sister, which is very much an African sort of, um, it's African culture. You know, you're my brother, you're my sister. And to see that in the workplace, that's not something I had actually thought about. You know, I didn't think that bringing those kind of values would be beneficial in a workplace, but I saw how it was beneficial. And I thought, hmm, I, I, I like this. I like that each of the judges brought themselves to work and each of them were able to contribute to creating a culture that was very diverse. And um, I mean, if you look at the bench of the court at the time, my own boss, Edwin Cameron, is someone who's HIV positive, HIV positive gay and a white male. He brings a certain kind of experience and background, you know. And then you have someone like Dehang Musaneke, the deputy chief justice at the time, who used to be imprisoned on Robben Island for 10 years, who became, you know, the first uh, senior counsel in Pretoria, the first black senior counsel in Pretoria, who then went on to be, you know, quite a, um, a successful businessman and then came back to the law. And then you have someone like uh, Sisi Kampepe, who was one of the first black women to go to Harvard Law School, you know, some one of the first black women to have to start her own thriving law practice. She was involved in the TRC hearings, you know. Um, all of these judges have such amazing personal stories. Zach Yakub, a judge who's been blind since the age of nine months because he had meningitis and someone who was involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. And not having have worked in a space with someone who's differently abled, someone who was blind, and seeing that the court was built in a way that he was able to navigate that, you know, and make his life easier so that he felt like he belonged. So that's one thing. The other aspect of it is what you mentioned, the building, how the building made me feel. You know, um, the, the, the background to my work was amazing artwork that the court has access to. And even the law clocks, you know, you get to choose uh, some from the collection, the artwork that you want in your office. And these are amazing South African artists, you know, and each of the, the pieces tell an amazing story. And um, just even the carpet, how the carpet was designed and the story behind the carpet. And then when you go into the court chamber itself that everyone has seen on TV, or if they visited the building, they would have seen the cowhide, the beautiful South African flag, you know, the, the light streaming in through the windows, the artwork, all of that, right? If you combine all I love that the ceiling is like a tree that you sit under with the light coming in. Exactly. So you can debate under the tree. Yes, and that's because the symbol for the court is justice under a tree. It's a, it's a tree that is protecting the people that sit underneath it. And the idea of that is that the court doesn't want to be seen as this adversarial space. It's a community space where we resolve our disputes and like Lekhotla, which again is an African concept, you know, uh, when the court was being built, it was understanding what would an African court look like. Take away the Roman symbols of, of justice, you know, of lady justice and the scales. You know, it's just starting with a blank slate and what the, that's what the court was and, and, and designing what we think an African court would look like in, in, in the 21st century. And I think for me, going from that space, and I promise you, because of all these ingredients, I didn't need an alarm clock when I worked up at the court. You know, I sprang out of bed. I wanted to to give it all I had. And, um, you know, it brought out the best in me to work with someone like Edwin Cameron, who valued my opinion. I remember when I first started, they were working on the Glenister case. 
And the Glenister case is, you know, we used to have uh, a crime fighting unit called the Scorpions and the government decided to disband them and replace them what we, with what we have now, the Hawks. And we were working on that judgment and I had just started at the court and I, I had done my, my master's thesis at UCT on something similar to what the case was about. And I mentioned something from my research and I remember looking at the draft of the, the judgment and seeing what I said to him in the judgment and being like, oh my God, no, wait, I haven't thought that out. Like, <laughs> this is like live ammunition. You can't just have casual conversations with these people, you know? So the seriousness with which, you know, Cameron engaged me and he thought that I had the ability to do the job, I had something to say, I could contribute. That just made me present myself at work in a very different way, in a more dignified way. You know, I took on the sense of responsibility and I took on the sense of service that this this job was. And for me, then going back to a law firm, it was kind of like, you know, I don't know if you've seen your average big firm building. Yes, <laughs> big and glass. Very uh, intensive. <laughs> very shiny. And yeah. um, in, in, in a lot of ways, no personality or no African personality, right? And when you think of then the culture that uh, that background serves, it's a, it's a very neutral culture. It's a very nondescript culture. You could be anywhere in the world when you're in those law firms, right? And um, the culture doesn't do justice to the kind of diversity that is found within the staff of the firm, because a lot of people are taken on because they look and, and come from particular backgrounds. But once you're inside, the, cult the culture is already established. They then tell you all the rules of the culture and you now need to assimilate. And for me, it made me realize that what I observed at the court you know, the, 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 the beauty that diversity can produce and the innovation and the creativity, because some of the judgments, all of the judgments of the Constitutional Court, they are respected around the world. They are quoted around the world. They come up with the most interesting solution to these problems. And I say that is because of the diversity that is on the bench and the diversity that's within the law clerk um, um, body. Because all of that. I think it's also. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think what you're describing, you know, in in our world, like we we call them purpose-led organisations. I think the court has the constitution. It has this 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 document or this this clearly articulated purpose, like a dent that they're trying to make in the world mm -hmm. that they have to go after. And I think by having that so clear, everybody who joins, be it like you say, as a clerk or a cleaner or a judge has something that they know that this this institution or this company or this organization is trying to achieve. Yeah. And that that gets the best out of you because you're now not just working on this job. You're working on on something that has a bigger bigger meaning, a bigger kind of thing than just the actual task that you happen to be producing. Um, and I think off the back of that they can they can create a brand which which people are attracted to, people respect, they can see the impact that it's making in their lives and in other people's lives. Exactly. And like you say, it's respected around the world. It's it's rated as one of the, the, the fairest and, and most reputable courts yeah. you know, on the planet. Yeah. And and I think that's all down to that that clear and and concise, well not so concise, but that clear articulation of the purpose of this organization. Exactly. And I think that's right. Like if we had to look at the court as an organization that offers a blueprint on how purpose-led companies could operate or how companies that desire to be purpose-led 
you know, if they don't know where to start, I offer, as including society, I offer lessons that people learn from the making of the court, you know, um, as to how those could be infused into the private sector. And for me, it's like, you're right, the the lodestar for the constitutional court is the constitution. You know, that's just, that has its vision statement in the form of the preamble. And I've always had, you know, uh, a desire to see the preamble be in every single building in South Africa, just like you have the... the the, the basic conditions of employment at plastered <laughs> on the wall is yes. that um, all companies have their own values that they come up with and their own vision statement is that collectively, you know, all of us should have one document in, in, in common over, over and above uh, our own unique sort of uh, visions. And that should be the vision that's articulated in the preamble of the constitution. And that's where the court finds its um, values. And um, it's 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 sort of a mission statement as to what it is, what, what's the kind of society we're trying to create here, and we are guiding ourselves towards that vision, and saying that the constitution wasn't just for public institutions; it's also for private companies. And I think you don't get a lot of this constitutional speak within companies, you know, and somehow they think that they operate outside of that. They don't. If you're a company based in South Africa, a, you know, a post-conflict society that is deeply divided along race, gender, sex, and many other divisions, political, you know, ideological divisions, is that we have this document that has a plan on how we can all come together and, as the preamble says, united in our diversity to create, you know, uh, or to realize the vision that is set out in this document. And I think for me, once once businesses are uh, or allow themselves to be guided by the constitution and the constitutional vision, automatically you have a purpose, regardless of what um, sector you're in. You have a purpose mm. because we're all operating South Africa and South Africa requires a certain kind of, um, you know, a certain kind of active citizenry from us and from companies, you know. And I think that um, it's, it's, a, it's a starting document for all of us. And I think that um, it's, it's a language that we should be using even in our time. own documents and in, in our own visions. I mean, the thing, the things, the two things that are, are, are kind of circled in in our notes from our, our our call that we had before the recording is that you called the constitution the purpose of our nation, yeah, which I think is amazing. And and the other realization is that I had that I'm a you know a, a proud South African, and I've not read the full constitution. I, I I don't know what the whole constitution of South Africa actually says. Yeah. Um, you know, and I actually downloaded it. I haven't read it yet, but it, mm. it was an interesting thought that there's this purpose of our nation and, and me as a, a citizen of it hasn't necessarily engaged with that in the, the depth to which I should have. Yeah. You know, part of the including society experience, you know, now that I'm a, a fully fledged company, it's working with companies to sort of make them or introduce them to the document, because I don't think it's something you can read all in one go. 
um, even lawyers, you know, some of them haven't read entire chapters of the constitution because sometimes it's something that you learn as you find yourself in a certain situation. But I would say as a, as a primary sort of uh, entry point into the constitution, chapter, chapter one, the preamble, chapter one and chapter two, chapter one says what our, our values are as a country. It's our foundational statement, you know, and chapter two is the bill of rights. And I think that, um, as a basic and and the court actually produces a streamlined constitution with just those three chapters the preamble chapter one and chapter two because they also consider it as the bare minimum for people to know and i'm Mm. finding that south africans are getting more and more acquainted with the constitution because you know the zuma era presented the most ridiculous sort of uh constitutional conundrums which played out on television and the court really became popular during Zuma's era, because a lot of the trials and the hearings were on television. And then people wanted to know more, like, what are, what does our constitution say about ministers being fired or the appointment of ministers or, you know, tender processes or the, 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 the president being able to upgrade his home, you know, using millions and millions of rands of, of state money, that kind of thing made people a lot of, uh, made people curious. But our constitution isn't like, easily available you know the court tries to print as many as it can but i think we need a huge drive of my passion as including society now is to get big corporates to fund the the printing of the preamble for everyone and uh, more long term of the entire document for everyone and i think that um you know it's kind of like you know if you have a best friend you probably don't know your your best friend's history entirely, but you know that they're your best friend. You know that you have the same values. For me, I want people to know that about the constitution, that their values align with the values of the constitution. We can get to the details because sometimes it's just not practical. It's not easily accessible for everyone. But as long as the desire is there, I'm glad that you've downloaded it. And, you know, one of the ways that including society introduces people to the constitution is that our conversational lunches, are, some of them are held at Constitution Hill in a beautiful space there, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a prison space, you know, in the museum space. The women's jail. Or yeah, the... the women's jail or the old fort, you know. Uh, and we first start off with the tour. And what the tour does, it allows people to immerse themselves in the South African story because you can tell the story of South Africa but te- by telling the story of the site. And mm-hmm. then I tell them about the work of the court, how it was built, who the judges were, and just all the things that have allowed the court to have the strong foundation that it has today. And by looking at a real-life example of a transformative institution and site, then we go into the questions of um, you know, belonging. And, and and through that, you know, I try and infuse a lot on, on what the Constitution stands for, because I think, you know, uh, Constitution Hills is, is a space that neutralizes us in the sense that we may be polarized in a lot of ways. But when we all end up at Constitution Hill, I think we let down our guards because we all agree that that is, a, is a, an aspirational story. It's a beautiful story. We can all agree on that and we want to amplify mm. that. We all have the desire to amplify what has happened at, at Constitution Hill in our own private spaces. So then including society says, how can we make that real? 
beyond just the constitutional court where you're like, oh, that is really thoughtful. That is really amazing. That's really creative and innovative. And then just walk away. It's like, no, how can you take some of these lessons and make them real within your own companies? Yes. I mean, I, I love, I love the, 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 the thinking. I mean, what dawned on me while you were talking now is that I think the constitutional court is one of the only institutions in South Africa that has nobody who dislikes it or nobody who will, who will publicly say they dislike it and nobody who um, kind of, you know, like tarnishes its name. I think as an organization or as a, as a thing, it's kept its, it's kept to its ideals um, very strongly throughout the entire history of the country. Yeah, and I think that's something that you then can apply to purpose-driven companies as to what is the payoff. That is the payoff, that you have a yes. lot of institutional integrity, you have a lot of public support, and it doesn't mean that the court gets it right all the time. There are judgments that I have an issue with, right? But because yeah. I have faith in the system and I understand that they are driven by higher values, I'm like, I may not like this, but I'll accept it because also I think another ingredient to belonging and inclusion is an organization or an institution that justifies its decision. You know, yes. and I think that when you contrast that to our government or some of the corporates that just make decisions, you know, without explaining to people as to how they got there, you know, I think that's why the, the pe people have confidence in the court is that, oh, they arrived at a conclusion that I don't like, but I see their reasoning here. It's set out in the document, right? And then when people can see themselves on that bench, you know, you see black women, you see white men, you see black men, you see um, someone who belongs to the LBGTQIA community, you see someone who understands HIV AIDS and how much, you know, the intraviral drugs um, cost, you see someone who's blind, you know, you see that um, the court is very inclusive in, in its idea of who can become a judge, because traditionally a person who was deemed worthy to be a judge was someone who was middle-aged, white, and um, a man. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and sometimes when you look at companies and you think who, who is worthy to be a CEO, it's still that same model, you know, or if you look at the power structures of these companies, it's not enough just to be purpose driven. That purpose needs to materialize in the kind of structures and the people that you employ and the kind of um, meaningful sort of diversity, inclusion and representation that people from the outside can see in the structures. And some of the mistakes that companies make actually wouldn't wouldn't happen if they if they had all these voices around the table and you know, all their audiences would be more forgiving of them if they say listen we did do this and we made a mistake yeah, and yeah, this is how we got there and people would be like yeah exactly and you know as, as including society my whole thing is a lot of people think of inclusion as i want to be given a seat at the table not necessarily what i want is for us to actually throw out the table and actually you know uh, sit in a circle and recreate the thing from scratch <laughs> where all of us can see some kind of reflection of our experiences, our views, and who we are in this new thing that we've created, right? And uh, I think that's the exciting opportunity, and that's why the court is as beautiful as it is, because uh, a lot of stakeholders were given the opportunity, and the South African public were given the opportunity to imagine what the justice system could be, because that court was built through a design competition. 
Yes. And, you know, people are also able to then be involved in, 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 in how judges are appointed. And I'm so glad to see that that now plays out on television, very much like the U.S., where you have the public interviews and people are invested and all of that. So for me, transparency is key for a purpose-driven organization, you know, like mm. yeah, show us how you make your decisions. Tell us why you've made a certain decision. Show us who's on your board, on your, in, your, in your management, in your structures and all of that stuff. And I think that builds public confidence that when, even when you do make a mistake or you do make a decision that people don't like, when you're transparent, I think people are more understanding and forgiving. I read a, a beautiful piece last night um, which said that it's not a principle until you've paid for it. Mm-hmm. And I love that thinking that you actually need to, to that it's not going to be the smoothest or easiest or cheapest or fastest route to stick to this, but the long-term gain and the long-term benefit is it will far outweigh the, the short-termism of, of not doing it. Yeah, and if you think of the options that were on the table when the court was being made, is that they were thinking of just revamping the appellate division, which was the highest court under apartheid, and today it's called the Supreme Court of Appeal. They were like, just make the constitutional court a department of the appellate division. Thank God we didn't do that, because that was just going to add to something that's already existing and hoping that, you know, uh, people will um, believe it as a new thing. But that mm. court already had such a long history, you know, and I'm not saying that reform wouldn't have been possible, but it just made me think of the conversations right now with Black Lives Matter, defunding the police, reforming the police, because that's an urgent conversation in South Africa as well. You know, a lot of people have very unpleasant and sometimes really brutal experiences with the police and people think about reforming the police, like, you know, reforming the court system. And for me, it's kind of like, take a look at what the court has done. It's almost saying that we needed to build something from scratch and then hoping that that, that new thing that we've built will set the tone for the entire yes. justice system. Similarly with the police, we had the Scorpions, right? We had the DSO and they could have been a great opportunity for us to build a new crime fighting unit. And it was doing really well. It was doing a good job. It had public confidence and the government got rid of it. And I think they could have set a standard that the police force in terms of reforming the police force could have risen to. And I think similarly with with companies is that if you take on sort of remaking some parts of your business, like creatively starting certain things from scratch, it infiltrates. If you if you do it well, it could infiltrate to the entire company, right? To be like, oh, that's interesting what that department is doing over there. Or, you know, the way that they've changed certain things that you then see how, what the payoff could be. And for me, there's a bottom line payoff to being purpose-driven and to being uh, an including company that creates a sense of belonging for all its people because you'll bring out the best in them and that is going to have a natural consequence of, you know, increasing your bottom line and also helping with yeah, turnover of staff, which is a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, people talk about the war on ta- war for talent all the time. I think this is definitely one of the, the easiest ways to keep people and engage people and get that discretionary effort. In my research, I've learned that people don't leave because of money. Most of the time they leave because they just find the culture unbearable. They feel like they don't belong. And, um, you know, they'll be persuaded to join a place where they feel that, you know, a lot of my friends who are at these big white law firms, a lot of them are looking to move at to medium-sized black firms, you know. They're willing to give up the big law firm paycheck 
for the opportunity of realizing their full potentials at a black firm and then maybe down the line making even more money. But that culture is a priority and it's the reason why a lot of people then move around, you know, from company to company because I've seen people who are willing to, like, for instance, I would have stayed longer with Donald. I would have given up. And I, in fact, I did because I did have an offer to move across to another firm while I was with him for more money. But I realized that being with Donald, you know, that is very rare to, to be in a space like that. And that for me was a big factor. So so I suppose, I mean, I'm just, uh, you know, we, we at the end of the episode, I'd love to, like, what is the, what do you encourage people to do? Like, what do you, like, how do you encourage them to engage with, with an organization like including society or the, or the constitution? What is the, the, the kind of challenge that you could put to people listening to this podcast to, to sort of pull back into their, into their companies and into their, their careers, um, you know, and to be guided a little bit better by the constitution? I think my challenge is reimagination. I think we unconsciously do the same thing day in and day out under the guise of tradition or precedent or or how it's been done before or how companies have been run before. And it's kind of like saying every year, you know, law firms have a new intake of of younger people, you know, um, who are dealing with um, such unique issues and relatable issues in certain respects. And they are stifled. You know, they're made to to fit the mold and uh, to to fit into the tradition and the culture. And for me, it's like reimagine how you can receive these people into your companies in a way that enriches you and in a way that brings out the best in them and in a way that reimagines what your company could be, because you're missing out on fresh ideas, on innovative ideas. And for me, it's like reimagine what a, a company can look like with no hierarchy. You know, the court has a thing of no hierarchy, uh, which I love. You know, it's just a complete reimagination of even how your building looks, of how the interior of your building looks, the message that it communicates. You know, it's a it's a reimagination of your place within society as a business. You know, in a society like South Africa, how do you respond to moments like this? You know, Black Lives Matter, COVID-19, all these contemporary issues that people are dealing with and not so contemporary because race has long been an issue in South Africa and the world. And for me, it's kind of like you'd be more equipped to deal with these challenges if your workforce is given the space and the platform to come into the business as themselves authentically. I would say get to know the people that you work with. Have meaningful conversation. This is why we have conversation lunches because, you know, I always tell a story. When I started at Dinesh Reeds, uh, I had a colleague who had spent all of his life at um, in the Eastern Cape and had never lived outside of the province. And his first experience out of the province was his first job at this law firm. And that's where I met him. And uh, I have been in Johannesburg all my life, and I know I know the different sort of uh, cultures in Johannesburg and all of that. I know white culture really well. I've been to white schools all my life and all of that. So when I arrived at the firm, uh, they had a, a, a rule of first name basis. I could adapt to that. I mean, you know, it wasn't much of a stretch. But for him, someone who had been in a certain kind of community and culture, we share the same culture, Kosa culture, where referring to someone older than you 
by their first name is almost unheard of. You know, it's something that doesn't come naturally to us because the way that we define respect in the Kosa culture is that you say sir and ma'am or you say dada and mama, whatever that, you know, translates into for different cultures. So when he started, he really had a, a problem adapting to this one rule. And uh, they thought he was being insubordinate, right? And they escalated it to HR and all of that. And what that made me realize is that had they had a conversation, had they tried to know him as a person and where he comes from, how he was raised, they would have understand why the switch wasn't so easy and that he wasn't being insubordinate. You're trying to undo a lifetime, you know, of, of, of living and, and um, being brought up a certain way in a space of a couple of months. And for me, what I wish for purpose-driven companies is genuinely get to know the people that are in your businesses, you know, before you make um, quick judgments on them and labels. And I think for me, once you do that, all the communication issues that people have within diverse companies would be just better dealt with, you know? So it would be imagination, creativity in what you could be, as inspired by the Constitutional Court, understanding what the vision not only for your country is, I mean, for your company is, but what the vision is for the country. If the country is thriving, your business is going to be thriving and how you can contribute to that. It's about understanding that your vision is also located within the preamble. It's about understanding that in a post-conflict society like South Africa, you have more of a responsibility and a purpose beyond just making a profit. It's about contributing to this bigger vision. And I think everyone has something to contribute. And as you said, it's, a, it's, a just, it's just about informing yourself about where it is that you live. You know, do you know the basics of South African history? I think that does a lot mm. to inform even an accounting business, you know, something that you would think is completely non-related to the constitution. It's not. So that would be my call to action. I mean, I love, I love this. There's so much in there, but I think the, the piece that I, I enjoy the most is that this can be. It doesn't have to be an altruistic act. It can be a selfish act. So, yeah. so by doing this and by leaning into this, it's actually better for you. Um, it doesn't require this uh, kind of elevating yourself and giving freely. You can be selfish and achieve this at the same time. So there isn't anyone who actually is harmed in this process, which. I think is the power of it all. Yeah. And what I'm finding out as, as, as I'm building my own company as an authentically South African business is that internationally it's getting a lot of interest, you know. And um, I was supposed to work with a company in Germany, for instance, but those plans have been put on hold because of COVID. But for me, it's like, why not leverage this unique culture and history that we have? People love the South African story. I mean, we all know that. When you travel, when you say you're proudly South African, probably when you travel around the world and you say you're from South Africa, people love that. Even with all the drama and all the, the, the challenges that we face, there's something that, you know, even when I go to Constitution Hill, I'm reminded of that regardless of our struggles, there's something that reminds the world that we can pull through our toughest moments. You know, and I think that's what South Africa represents. We were one of the last to pull through, you know, uh, you know, not colonialism, but it felt like it, but apartheid. And um, we did it in a way that the world thought up until that point was impossible. And um, I think for me, there's still a lot to be learned. And through including society, just even looking at how we made our country, 
what are some of you know the lessons I can learn from that story that businesses that are facing challenges and trying to negotiate difficult times can learn from how we negotiated you know our country into being into existence so I think for me it's like there's a lot that you can gain from being a visibly and authentically South African company through how your building looks you know supporting South African artists you know allowing people to bring their cultures to work I remember when Winnie Mandela died, a lot of the black women at this other firm I worked for, they wore dukes on their head, on their heads. And some people are very uncomfortable with that. They don't want them to do it. It's like, just allow people to express themselves, you know? That's how you create a yeah. sense of belonging. And that's how you create people who will be loyal to your company and want to do the best work for your company. I love that. I mean, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. That was uh, really inspiring. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And um, I'm always, you know, um, I'm a conversational person, so I'm always up for interesting questions. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to express what it is that I'm about and what Including Society is about. So I, I'm very appreciative of your platform. Awesome. Thank you so much. And we'll catch you in the next one. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. In the words of Carlos Corbian, sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who would benefit from this podcast, please send it on to them. This is our second season, and we'd be super grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button. And if you think we're worth it, give us a review. We welcome feedback, good or bad. We release an episode every two weeks. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork, a purpose-led branding company in Johannesburg, South Africa. If you'd like to further this conversation, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're a little bit old school, let us know and we'll make you a mixtape.